Hey, uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship. And whether this is the first time you've ever walked in our doors or whether this is your 200th time, we're just so glad that you came and worshiped with us this afternoon. Uh, if you guys got a bulletin when you came in, you'll see that there's a, a sermon outline if you'd like to follow along. I just want to give you guys proof that I'm not just up here rambling and uh, I've been getting ready for this all week long. So we're going to start a new sermon series this afternoon, uh, and we're going to start talking about the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, you guys might be thinking to yourself, like on a beautiful Sunday afternoon like this, why would we want to sit here and listen to something that was written 2,500 years ago? And so uh, I'd like to just start off and answer that question by giving you guys three reasons why I think God has led us to learn a little bit more about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the next couple of weeks. All right, reason number one is this. This pandemic year that we're coming out of, it mirrors the exile. The Old Testament tells the story of God's people, the Israelites, and uh, as a punishment, they find themselves displaced from the promised land. Uh, and they find themselves out of the place that uh, God had given them to live as a punishment. And I think if we think about it a little bit, we're going to see that this last year that we've lived through, it's not a perfect comparison, but we've certainly experienced some unprecedented things that as Americans we probably haven't experienced in the past. Uh, and a couple of those would be our worship has been interrupted, we've been displaced, uh, there's been a great financial cost, and our mental health has been threatened. Let me just elaborate on those a little bit. And Lamentations... Chapter 2, verse 6, the writer of Lamentations, it's probably Jeremiah, he's, he's kind of talking about the effects of the exile. And he says this, the temple was destroyed like a garden. I want you guys to think about the last time you were just redoing your garden and you were just ripping out the weeds and you were just moving things around. Unless it was a really, really long time and things grew roots, it probably was a pretty easy process to just rip those weeds and those plants out. And Jeremiah, the poet, is saying, the temple was knocked down by these Babylonian invaders as if somebody was just weeding their garden. And with the temple demolished, with Jerusalem smashed, there was no place for God's people to worship. And maybe you can relate to that. Uh, a researcher group called Pew Research says that from July 2020 to March 2021, 60% of all people that they surveyed who at one time regularly attended church said that they didn't attend church at all during that period. 60% of people surveyed who had formerly attended church each week didn't attend at all from July to March. One-third of those surveyed said at the time they were no longer worshiping in any form, in person or online. That's an unprecedented interruption in worship. How about uh, people being displaced in Lamentations 1-1, talking about the exile Jeremiah says, how lonely is Jerusalem, like a widow? He's saying this once beautiful world, worldwide city is now full of loneliness, like a widow, because it was so desolate. So many people were forced out during the exile. Some studies that I saw this week said that 6% of all American households had a change in residency during the pandemic. In other words, 6% of all households in America either had a new person move in or a regular person move out. And you probably have had a little bit of that too with a family member moving in or 
moving to another place. Uh, I know my family has moved in this last year, and I would have thought I would have thought it would be higher than six percent, but that's that's still a lot of people being displaced. That's still a lot of people moving into new situations. How about the cost? In Ezra one six, it says that Jerusalem was only rebuilt with the finances of the Persian Empire. In other words, they were bankrupt. They had nothing left to rebuild with. You guys probably don't want to hear this, but you know those stimulus checks that we all got? Every taxpayer is going to have to pay an additional $17,000 over the course of the next 20 years. Some of you might be like, well, that's not so bad. That's addition. That's addition to what we normally would have paid. So this is an extremely costly thing that we've gone through in this last year. Like, and that's just taxes. Think about healthcare costs. Think about entertainment. Think about goods. Everybody that's lost money over this last year is going to be looking to recoup that money. There's going to be an incredible financial cost to this last year. And how about this? Maybe saddest of all, the mental health toll of the isolation of this last year. Lamentations 1.20, Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me. That's a way that a poet says, I'm losing it. I can't, I can't hold it together. Uh, before the pandemic started, uh, uh, research showed that one in 10 adults claimed anxiety or depression. Do you guys know that tragically during the pandemic, now four in 10 adults say that they're experiencing depression or heightened anxiety. So with our worship interrupted and our people displaced and with a great financial cost and with a threat to mental health, I think you can see that there's a lot of parallels. I almost said exciting parallels. They're, they're tragic parallels between what Israel experienced as they came back into the land and started to rebuild their faith community and what we're going through as a church and as a country right now. Another reason I think it would be really timely for us to learn a little bit more about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are that it gives us a great glimpse of what God prioritizes for an individual who wants to prioritize their spiritual vitality. Like, it's been a hard year for everybody here. I don't think anyone's doing great. But for anybody who wants this next year to be better, for anybody that wants to get to a new place with God in the year ahead, Ezra and Nehemiah are a great example of people who have done it before and what God prioritizes in that process. Let me ask you a question, Montana. Masks are no longer required. Most people are vaccinated. Are you ready to get back to the life that we knew before? That's not rhetorical, yes or no? Yes. Yeah, like we're, it felt, it felt like it was wrong to even talk about that two or three or four months ago. But I want to give you guys permission to smile. We're going to see it because it's not covered by a mask. Like now is the time where it's appropriate to start planning on rebuilding our lives. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are going to give us a great roadmap as to how God's people have done that in the past. That's true for us as individuals. And finally, the third reason why I think these are just really timely books to study are because they reveal insightful lessons for rebuilding a faith community. Like, they had to rebuild all of Jerusalem. We just have to rebuild Big Sky Christian Fellowship. And we'd be wise to have lessons from God as we do it. 
Uh, so those are some reasons why I think uh, this is a, a, a good section of the Bible to study. I think I forgot to explain. Ezra and Nehemiah are now two separate books in the Old Testament, but they were originally just one cohesive story. So I'm just going to treat them like they're one book because that's what they are in the Jewish Bible, and that's what the author intended them to be uh, when they first wrote them. All right, section two, we're moving fast. I might have already said one or two things that didn't quite make sense because there's a historical context. There's like things that happened that we have to know about if we all want to be on the same page and understand what God's communicating to us through these very old stories. Uh, So I just, for the next couple of minutes, I want to tell you guys three things. The history of the exile. I'll go really fast. I want to talk about the genre or the style that these books are written in because Every book of the Bible is written a little bit differently with a different audience, with different goals. And the more that we're in tune with that, the more meaningful it will be for us as we study them. And then I want to go deeper with one final lesson. Uh, I think if we can just get through this in uh, six or seven minutes, the next four or five weeks that you guys come, you're going to be experts, right? You know when you're watching the History Channel and they got the guy in the bow tie and it says like, World War II expert, right? You're going to be Ezra and Nehemiah expert. You'll get interviewed on History Channel. All right. The history of the exile. What does this word mean? And if you guys really want to read the most direct account in Scripture, I'll give you some homework. You can just read two chapters, 2 Kings 24 and 2 Kings 25. And those give like the most linear chronological account of what happened historically. But this is a major theme of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So if you would please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And this is a really interesting passage for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, it's rich in foreshadowing. It's showing us that this idea of exile or punishing God's people for, for breaking the things that they were supposed to do, like it's, it's something that God gave so many countless warnings to the Israelites about. And I think this is one of our best, just really quick summaries of why a good God would punish the people that he loves in this way. So let me read to you Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 31. And I just want to point out that this is before God's people were even in Israel for the first time. This is Deuteronomy. So they were slaves in Egypt. God empowered Moses to deliver them from captivity. And now they're about to enter into this good promised land so that they can be God's chosen people. And before that's even happened, listen to the warning that they get. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of evil and do evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, you will arouse his anger. And I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the promised land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You'll not live there long, but you'll certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you'll find him, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is merciful. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. In other words, God allowed this foreign army of Babylonians to come into Jerusalem, knock everything to the ground, burn it all away, and then drive 
thousands of the best and the brightest Israelites into other countries, but it wasn't purely punitive. It wasn't only because God was angry. It wasn't only because he wanted uh, to show them how much they displeased him. He wanted to captivate their hearts so they would understand all the things that they had neglected to appreciate and then re-enter into the promised land and live as representatives of God like he always intended. A quick story that comes to mind, it's not a great illustration, but during Christmas time, a friend of mine said, hey, a couple buddies and I were goofing around in the office and we won a PlayStation 5. Do you think that your kids would like the brand new PlayStation 5 for Christmas? Right? You guys aren't impressed. There's, there's nerds out there that are still trying to get this like seven months later, okay? I was like, of course. My kids received a present. They were so thrilled to get a PlayStation 5. And a week or two didn't go by before my wife was like, I think we need to take it away. I don't think they're appreciating this. They're not doing their chores. They're getting a little sassy. Like, why in the world would you give something, something wonderful, only to take it away? It's an interesting question, right? God gave the promised land to the Israelites because he wanted them to live in goodness and abundance. But when their hearts were off, when they broke the creator-created relationship, like, correction was needed. That's what the exile is all about. God's not just trying to hammer his people. He's trying to restore the relationship with him that they were always supposed to have. And he's willing to take away the good thing that he gave in order to bring that right relationship back. This all happened around 605 B.C. And there's some really, I don't want to get off track here, there's some really fascinating historical, archaeological things that pop up with this story. We just finished talking about the story of Jonah the last couple of weeks, and I mentioned that I think there's some stories in the Bible that um, maybe they're satire, maybe they're exaggerated, maybe we're not supposed to believe that they literally happened, but I think that most of the stories in the Bible historically happened, and there's proof that they did. Uh, Archaeologists have been excavating Jerusalem for hundreds of years, and they found something really fascinating. They found a fire layer. Do you guys know what a fire layer is? Just imagine uh, that things deteriorate over time. Some materials deteriorate faster than others. But if all of a sudden an entire city burned to the ground, everything that existed at that time would then be condensed into one tiny pile of burnt ember and ash and unburnable artifacts. And it would all be preserved in the same thing, and that's called the fire layer. So what's so fascinating is a lot of people will tell you that the Bible is full of hoaxes and it didn't really occur as historians tell you that it did. Archaeologists have found two fascinating things within the fire layer of Jerusalem that dates all the way back to 600 BC. The first one is Babylonian arrowheads. Now what would you expect to find if Babylonians came into Jerusalem, killed everybody, shot everybody, and burned it down? You would find stone Babylonian arrowheads, would you not? And another one, I'm not making this up, you can see this in a museum. In one particular area of where they thought the palace was, there was this office where the scribes were. The scribes uh, wore these signet rings, and uh, every time they were making one of the king's official decrees official, they would dip that ring in wax, and they would put it on the scroll, and that means like the king is behind this, you better do what it says. They've actually found a signet ring in the burn layer of Jerusalem that says the name Jeremiah. 
who's the prophet that documents most of the exile. Again, like you can, you can come up with clever hoaxes, but you can't put an ancient ring that says Jeremiah 20 feet underground in the burn layer, right? Like this is historical stuff that really happened. Um, well, the story starts to resolve when we come into it here in Ezra and Nehemiah, because about 66 years later, uh, Cyrus the Great, the Persian leader, took over the whole region at that time. So where uh, Babylon was the country that displaced Israel, Persia took over everything. And Persia had a different policy with its uh, refugees uh, and with its exiles than Babylon, that, that Babylon did. Uh, one thing, I, a quote I came across in a history book this week was, while the Assyrians and Babylonians built their empires on slaughter and deportation, Cyrus and the Persians offered religious tolerance in return for political loyalty. In other words, the Persians, and this is true historically, you can find all sorts of Persian manuscripts and inscriptions on walls, their idea wasn't that they were going to destroy everybody with the sword, they were going to support all the countries and empires that they took they were going to give them religious freedom in exchange for political loyalty. And that's exactly what it tells us in the story of Ezra. The Persian kings actually say, we will help you rebuild Jerusalem so long as you're still loyal to us. And that's exactly where the resolution and the rebuilding of Israel starts to happen, as we'll talk about in the next week or two. Um, final thing I want to say is we kind of just established the context of this is the special way that this is written and it's written in a historical narrative and a historical narrative is essentially telling a great story that happened but also including details that kind of bring people into it. I was trying to think of the best example I could think of a historical narrative and I love stories of explorers I love to read them to my kids I want them to grow up thinking that they're still places in the world to explore. So I got them this book about Shackleton's expeditions to the South Pole. Are you guys familiar with some of those voyages? They'd get all this money and they'd try to be the first one to get to the South Pole and then because you're not really supposed to sail in the Arctic, their ships would get frozen in the ice for like three years and they'd uh, have to do terrible things to survive. But anyway, in this particular historical narrative, if we go on to the next slide, it's filled with pictures of what the inside of the ship looked like it's filled with lists of all the supplies that you would need for a three-year Arctic voyage. I think there's another one that shows the names of all the people that were in the expedition. And I bring this up because as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, it's narrative, it's stories, but it's also filled with lists. There's lists of all the things that they brought from the temple. There's lists of all the people who returned from the exile. There's lists of all the leaders there's lists of everybody who was in a mixed marriage with a non-Jewish wife. There's lists of everybody who helped rebuild the wall. And the examples go on and on. So that's just basically a way of understanding what it is that we're reading. It's historical narrative filled with lists just to kind of round out that this really happened and some of the details that kind of showed that the person telling the story was really there and is passing on that information to us. There's one final thing that I want to point out before we start to wrap up, and uh, it's the deeper reading. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we make the mistake of saying, these are the five ways you're supposed to be like Ezra, or these are the three ways that you can be like Moses. 
problem is we're all sinners. And even the great protagonists in the Bible are sinful people. And so what I want to point out before we get too deep into the story is that uh, there's three leaders that emerge uh, in these two books of the Bible that help rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And all three of them make huge mistakes. Okay, So let's not make the mistake that just because we're reading about a figure from the Bible, we always have to be exactly like them because sometimes we're, we're supposed to learn from the mistakes of the people in the Bible and not do the mistakes that they make. For example, this guy, Zerubbabel, he comes back to uh, rebuild the temple, but he doesn't let the youngest generation help. He keeps them from the building. And there were previous prophets that talked about how everybody was supposed to be included. So that's a mistake that's made. And his story kind of ends on a weird note because he didn't get it right. Then there's Ezra. Ezra does a lot of great things right. This is something that gets a lot of people discouraged as they read through the Bible and gets them skeptical that the Bible is about this unified story from God. Because Ezra comes back and he sees that a lot of the Jews have married non-Jewish people who have other gods and they've started to compromise a little bit and live in the ways that some of the other cultures do. And so Ezra demands that they all divorce their non-Jewish wives and send the wives and the children out of Jerusalem. And a lot of people hear that and they think that's terrible. How, how could God condone that? But of course, with a deeper reading, God doesn't condone it because in other places like the book of Malachi, he says... God, God doesn't want them to get divorced. He didn't want that to happen. So again, don't make the mistake of thinking that every time someone in the Bible does something, that's what we're supposed to do, because they make mistakes just like we do. Um, furthermore, like, do you see the irony in that? Like, They just came back from the exile, and Ezra's response is to exile all these people. Like, it's, He's not supposed to do that. Nehemiah makes a mistake too. This is a very uh, Trumpian thing to talk about, regardless of what side of Trump that you're on. Nehemiah comes in and he declares that he's going to build a wall, right? And when I said Trump and wall building, I just like, now everybody's 50-50. Like, they're looking around. <laughs> who laughed? Who frowned? Like, whose side am I on? There's, there's tension that comes with that, right? And there's tension as Nehemiah rebuilds the wall because the prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem after the exile was going to be a place for all people of all nations to come and to follow God and to, to worship in the temple, and it would be a city with no walls. So even though Nehemiah does this great thing by building these walls, he probably wasn't supposed to even build walls in the New Jerusalem. So we'll talk about those in future weeks as we try to get to the bottom of what God is speaking to us in these ancient stories of rebuilding ourselves spiritually after a crisis as well as rebuilding our faith community after a crisis. And uh, let's wrap up with this, section three. Some of you are already super bored. Now that you don't have masks on, I can tell, okay? You were good the last year because I had no idea. Now I can tell. I understand that nobody came here today for a history lesson. Like, I get it, okay? What I was really just trying to establish was when we understand the context of what's happening in these 2,500-year-old stories, we're going to hear fresh from God ourselves here in 2021. Some of you are probably thinking, and this is exactly what's going through my mind as well, like, this is 2021, man, and I've got 2021-year problems. Like, I, I'm not worried about a wall. I'm not worried about the exile. 
I've got things that I'm worried about in the here and now. So now that we've got a little bit of that context established, let me wrap up with three themes from Ezra and Nehemiah that I think speak to us today that we'll be able to investigate in future weeks. The first one is what I call the primacy of the altar. Okay? The Jewish people have been out of Israel for three or four generations. They're finally back in the holy city. They're finally back in the promised land. What's the first thing that they should do? I might think they should build a wall, right? Because you can't really get on with your life until you feel secure. You might think they should build a temple because it would be really valuable to worship and, and, and be reminded of all the good things that God had done in the past. But interestingly enough, the very first thing that's done is Ezra rebuilds the altar. Now, we don't really have an altar as part of our worship. Some other traditions do. Let's just talk about what I think it means for us right now that the altar is the first thing that's rebuilt. If you go to places like Exodus 29:42, we're getting really Old Testament here. We don't still access and worship God in these ways, but it was a different time and it was a different place. And in those times, this, this, this offering was given every day, a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening, and grain was also burnt. And it tells us in Exodus 29:42 that there was a continual fragrance that all the people would smell as they walked by the temple. And what that particular sacrifice reminded everybody was that their sins were forgiven, they were loved by God, and there was nothing, no sin, obstructing their relationship with God. In other words, even though we don't sacrifice animals, even though this is 3,000 years ago, let's just think about what it represents, the altar and the fragrance that came off of it was a reminder to all the Israelites that their sins were forgiven by God, they were loved by God, and there was nothing obstructing their relationship with God. So if the altar is the very first thing that Ezra sets about to reestablish after the exile is ended, that's really fascinating, is it not? Because God is telling us as we rebuild from a crisis pandemic year, the number one thing that he wants us to reestablish is a clean heart. We want to get our finances in order. Oh, we want to make sure we've got all this taken care of. The first thing that God wants us to take care of is to have a cleansed heart. That might seem a little bit naive, so I'm trying to think of an illustration of how powerful this is when it's acted out. And I came across a story this week from a a website called The Guardian. I think it's from uh, the UK. It's from a a reporter named Hilda Burke, and it's about how successful American prisons are rehabbing violent offenders with the help of dogs. Isn't that weird? Listen to this. I'm just going to read a paragraph. I find myself in jail, but unlike the 5,000 inmates of North Kern State Prison, located 150 miles north of Los Angeles, I'm here voluntarily. And I'm accompanied by Zach Scow, a man on a mission to bring dogs into every single U.S. prison. Zach Scow is the founder of Positive Change, a rehabilitation program that pairs rescue dogs with inmates. He began this program in a California City Correctional Facility in January 2016, teaching inmates how to become dog trainers, and it's now been rolled out to four more California prisons and female juvenile correction centers. 
To this date, more than 300 men have graduated from the program, and roughly 200 dogs from high-kill shelters have been rescued and adopted as a result of the inmates' work. 17 of the program's human graduates have been paroled so far, and not a single one has returned to incarceration. The typical return to incarceration rate for violent offenders is 43%. Uh, one more paragraph. As I watch the men go through their paces with their dogs, I'm immediately impressed. Working with the dogs and seeing what the animals are going through prompts the men to speak of their own experiences. When one student relates how his dog didn't want to come out of the kennel in the first few days, another shares that he didn't want to leave the cell his first few days in prison. As a therapist, I found the student's level of emotional literacy and ability to be vulnerable staggering. All right, so that illustration's a little bit out there, but in other words, if it doesn't make a lot of sense, think about it like this. Violent prisoners, violent offenders, these are people that have demonstrated that they don't really have what it takes to integrate into normal day-to-day -day society. When you kill somebody, when you're a drug cartel, when you're covered in face tattoos, you're, you're saying like, at this point, I'm not quite ready to do all the things that other people are doing. And 43% of all violent offenders that are released end up back in prison. But somebody came up with the idea of letting these prisoners train a rescue dog to rehab an animal. And somehow in the process of giving love to that dog and receiving love back, their hearts were fixed on just a fundamental enough level where they were able to reintegrate into society in ways that their peers were not. I just think that's a beautiful, tangible example of how sometimes when everything's in chaos and we don't even know where to start, the best first step is to just get your heart right. That's the primacy of the altar. That's what it's significant for us when Ezra established the altar as the very first thing. And so as you guys think about 2021, as you think about 2022, as you think about all the things that you have to do to rebuild your marriage, to rebuild your relationships, to rebuild your finances, to rebuild your church. Just remember the primacy of the altar. Because the first thing that God wants you to do, according to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, is to get your heart right with Him. It tells us in uh, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, that the reason we don't sacrifice animals anymore is because Jesus Christ has become the ultimate sacrifice. So we don't have to worry about the lambs and the grain anymore. What it means for us to get our heart right is to spend time every morning saying, Jesus Christ, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for, for taking away my sins. Thank you for taking away all the obstructions that I brought into this world between me and my Creator. And this is getting very New Testament. But because God has forgiven us, we are called to have an overflow of forgiveness into the lives of those around us. So if we want to take this call from Ezra and Nehemiah seriously to get our hearts right, as we start to rebuild our spiritual vitality, we need to spend time every day thanking God for the forgiveness that he's made possible for us. Yeah, I'm going to go there. And then we also have to contemplate forgiving all the people who have wronged us. And just like those prisoners, those violent offenders, are, are finding a healing because they're able to get their hearts right by loving that dog and being loved by that dog back. I think the first step that we're called to do as we start to rehabilitate our lives and pursue spiritual vitality 
is to appreciate the forgiveness that we've been given and then let that overflow go into the lives of the people that each one of us need to forgive as well. The second thing that we're going to see that's a relevant theme for us from this ancient book is the power of prayer and spiritual reconstruction. Now, the, the king of Persia gives all this money to Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. He gives them an armed escort. He gives them all these incredible resources. But we're going to find out that all the way through these two books of the Bible, like they're praying all the time. And they, like they prayed in a lot better ways than we do back then. Listen to this. This is from a commentary I read this week. Prayer is woven through these two books in the fabri- uh, through the fabric of these two books. It takes a variety of forms. Sometimes it's a flash of mental prayer. Sometimes it's an eloquent address. Sometimes it's accompanied by additional forms of penitence, like fasting, pulling out the hair, ripping the garments, weeping, casting themselves down on the ground, wearing sackcloth, putting earth on one's head, or praising with music and shots. And of course, the importance of prayer is that it's a reminder that God can do things that we can't. And as we try to rebuild our church, and as you try to grow spiritually in the year ahead, after this awful pandemic year, you need to be people of prayer, because it's the reminder that God can do things that you can't. You want to put earth on your head, you can. You want to wear sackcloth, you can. I don't think you have to pray quite in the ways that Ezra and Nehemiah do. But of course, prayer is the reminder that sometimes we've done everything that we can and it's still not enough because there's some things that only God can do. And so I encourage you, just like I remind myself, to be people of prayer and to ultimately be calling on God to do these things that we just can't do on our own. We can't change another person's heart. God can change another person's heart. We can barely even change our own hearts. But God can bring change to our hearts. So the second thing that excites me about these two books is how frequently Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel turn to prayer. And what a timely reminder that is to us to not take on this burden of rebuilding our lives just in our own resources and just in our own strength. And the final thing I want to point out before we wrap up our service today is the tension that we see in this book and specifically the tension of the remnant. The remnant is the term that's given to these Jewish people that were exiled and now they come back and they're called the remnant. In other words, they're the people that never stopped believing that God was going to keep his promises. But there's this tension in Ezra and Nehemiah because the remnant is called to live in a city. They're called to rebuild Jerusalem. That, that, that requires vendors and, and, and people that are ethnically different and people that have different beliefs. And so there's this tension as God's people are called to live in community with others that are very different than them, but also to stay distinct as God had called them. Because by, by, by turning to idols and by not following the, the ways that God had called the Israelites to live, like that's why they went into exile in the first place. Do you guys start to understand the tension? And it's a tension that I think that everybody still lives with today. How do we show the world that we're different? How do we show the world that we love God and we're different than others, but also live with these people and love with these people that have different worldviews and different beliefs? It's a tension that we still face to this day, but it's a tension that we see a lot of wise answers to in these two books. Let me ask you guys this question. I'm kind of a nerdy guy. I kind of stand out in the big sky. I'm not a hipster. I'm not cool. Let me ask you this question, and we'll vote on it. If I got a tattoo 
And I took one day a week to just ski. And I had one beer after I skied, okay? So one tattoo, one beer, one ski day. Would that make me a more accepted and effective minister and big sky? I think, like, I think on some level you'd have to say yes. I think on some level I would be more effective and more accepted in this community, one tattoo, one beer, one ski day a week. But what if I had five tattoos, five beers, five ski days? Now all of a sudden the guy on the stool next to me, he's like, I don't, I don't want to listen to you. You're exactly like me. Like you're me. We're the same guy, right? Like, like, like that's the tension. And I'm just trying to make a joke. Everybody is free to, uh, to live as they want. There's no judgment or rebuke for me here today. That's a tension that we all face. We want to be like the people that we live with. We want to be like the people in our community. But God has also called us to be different and distinct, and it can look different ways. Don't focus in on the examples that I gave, but Ezra and Nehemiah are going to be some guidance for us on how we can be the remnant, how we can be God's holy people, while also pursuing the success and the growth of the community that we live in. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and wrap up our service. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our sermons aren't normally quite so informational, but we all kind of have to understand what it is that we're going to be talking about the next couple of weeks. And like I said, I think our pandemic year, it really mirrors what God's people went through in these stories. And I think if we can understand how God guided his people through that pandemic experience, I think we're going to hear from him and how he wants to order our lives and what he wants us to pursue us to pursue in the year ahead. So thank you so much for your attention. And uh, let's, uh, let's wrap up with a song or two as we just contemplate that even in a book that's 2,500 years old, like there's fresh things in here that God wants to communicate to us that will give us effective guidance as we navigate through our weeks and months ahead.